We are very grateful for what took place at the carnival last weekend and want to say thank you to all of you that were involved in any way on Carnival Sunday, uh, even if that meant you just came, because sometimes it's not as easy to come on a Sunday. But we had a great time on the Sunday and the Monday, and uh, everybody did such a fantastic job. And uh, two, over 200 people made commitments to Christ as well, which we're very grateful for. And we are following through all those that we can. You know, not everybody on the street comes from, you know, London area that we can follow up. Not everybody wants to give their address. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have... I mean, to say a prayer to God to ask you for forgiveness for sins on the streets in a carnival is quite a powerful thing to do. It's not just, oh, yeah, I'll pray. You know, you don't have to do that. And so God was at work, and we're excited about that. And, um, I mean, on the Sunday... I uh, walked up just to the top there, just, just by, uh, n- just by um, what's, his, what's his restaurant? Jamie Oliver's restaurant. And I saw them all streaming. Tens of thousands of people were on their way to Carnival, coming out of Notting Hill and coming down that road. And I sort of looked at KT, and I could see what... And the amazing thing was, right there at the top, as you began to come, you could hear booming out from the front of this church this happy, joyful praise and worship and gospel music and just to see all these people coming I mean they were thinking oh right we're on our way to carnival what's going to happen and their introduction their welcome to carnival was this marvelous Christian music marvelous KT people smiling and handing out tracks and the food which last year the television said that the best food in carnival was outside Kensington Temple on our side and happy faces serving goat curry and rice and peas and and then we had that bouncy castle in there uh, in the front (laughs) bouncy castle out there in the front and there's not that much for children to do I mean yes see the parade and stuff and the families were coming and the kids were going oh can we have and we had face paints and they were coming in and they were enjoying themselves and people were talking to the families while they were there and uh, as well as those who gave commitment just the light that was shining to these people you never know do you somebody might be in a fix one day and think do you know what I want to go and see, where could I meet God? And they might think, oh, that was a friendly church that I I walked past during carnival. And uh, uh, so we're we're excited about that. I actually emailed George Verwer. George Verwer, if you've been around over the summer, I know some have been on holiday and all that. But just before the uh, carnival, George Verwer came and delivered a powerful message during the day. And he was really encouraging us about carnival. And when I told him about what the day was like, he was just so excited that he, he, he took what I wrote and he re-messaged it to many of his leaders. So we're, we're excited about that. Things are good and we're getting ready for autumn. Autumn's always a wonderful time, I think, here at KT. A time of great work and great harvesting and the leaders net on Friday evening. And also, if you've got your rev- new Revival Times, page 17. Uh, again, just, just about a month or so ago, um, you may or may not have been here, but those that, that, that of you were here maybe in the morning or the 7 o'clock service will know that Noel Robinson, uh, the worship leader, was with us and we were introducing him and saying that he's going to be partnering with us for a number of months as a guest worship leader. And so that starts in September, and we're just going to do that for a few months, see how it goes, see how it works. And he'll be, he'll be coming to certain, 
uh, two Sundays, I think it is, a month. Uh, he'll be working behind the scenes and partnering with our excellent worship team and singers, and we'll be doing things together. And next Sunday, he's going to be with us at the 9 and 11 o'clock service and the 7 o'clock Holy Spirit ministry service. And here he is, and it's interesting to hear what he says. Kensington Temple is my spiritual home, says Noel. Not many people are aware, but my ministry was birthed at KT under the ministry of Colin Dye. And so the church has a special significance for me. So that's fun. That's good, isn't it? That's positive. Things are moving forward in the ministry, and I believe that God wants things to move forward in our lives. I believe this coming autumn could be a a very powerful one um, for us all. Also, while you've got your Revival Times, just turn to page four, because we have two new series starting next Sunday. And we need to spread the word so everybody knows what's going on at the 2.30. We're looking at the four, four, four square gospel. It's around a hundred years ago that the Pentecostals came on the scene rediscovering the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And since then, uh, the message of the gospel with power has spread across, across the world. And the early Pentecostals knew, called something, they called it the full gospel, the four square gospel. And their message was a very simple gospel, a very simple message. And it was all about Jesus. And it was about four aspects of Jesus. Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Healer, Jesus the Baptizer and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus the soon coming King. And we're going to be ministering and teaching and ministering out of that at the 2.30 service. Here at the five, we've got what I consider to be one of the most important series that, well, I suppose they're all important, but I think this is very important because we're going to be looking at a question of canon. And not many Christians have thought about the Bible, how the Bible came together. What, what books in the Bible, how, how did they get in there? What books were kept and what books weren't kept? Why in our Bibles do we have an Old and New Testament? Why in the Roman Catholic Bibles do they have a whole section of other books in the middle called the Apocrypha that they believe that is the Word of God, which it isn't? Well, you might say, well, who's right? Well, I need to show you why the Apocrypha is not the Word of God. If you don't know, then you are, you are susceptible to being... Um, attacked theologically by other religions who will come to you and say, you call yourself a Christian, do you believe in the word of God? Yeah, I believe. Is this the word of God, the Bible? Yes. Well, why do you have one Bible and the Catholics a whole different Bible, the whole bunch of new books? And you go, uh, uh, and then they just laugh at us. So which books, how did the books come together? How, how is the Bible 100% the word of God, yet also 100% the word of man. How do we know that these texts haven't been changed? You know, some Dan Brown novel about the Bible being written in the 300s. Absolute nonsense, but do we even know that it's absolute nonsense? Or would we just say, well, you know, because I understand that a lot of us, not you, you come here regularly, you're hungry for the teaching, but a lot of people, they just know that they know because of the witness of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's fine for you, but it's not fine for others, and we need to have an answer for our faith. So we will be looking at how the New Testament came together, and by the end of it, you will be stronger in your faith. You will be stronger in your understanding of the Word of God. It will help you. But today, we are finishing our series at the 2.30. We've been looking at marriage matters, all types of relationships, and Gabriel was speaking on communication today, and we had people talking and being interviewed about their communication in their new marriages, and, and that's been wonderful. These resources are on the internet for you. You just have to go to our, um, our 
webpage, kt.org, and go to our media section, and go to series, and you can go back to all of those, and you can go back to the, all the ones we've been looking here at the 5 o'clock. We've been looking at family matters. Right at the beginning, we said, well, what is family? What does the Bible teach us that is family? And we looked at the words in the Bible that define family. We looked at what marriage is according to Genesis. And uh, we looked also at, at what the world says marriage is. And how do you define marriage? And, and you know, what is marriage? And, and the big debate out there, you know, when people say, oh, I believe in gay marriage, or I don't believe in gay marriage. Well, the problem is, is that you both have different understandings of what marriage is. And we looked at what the Bible understanding was of marriage and, and explored that. And today we're going to finish off by looking at the subject of the fact that God loves broken families. Because I'm aware we've been speaking about marriage, we've been speaking about the roles of the husband and the wife and how they're suited together. We've been speaking about headship and submission and, you know, uh, wives be submissive to your husbands, but men love your wives as Christ loved the church. We've been looking at, at these things and talking about, you know, what God's best is and what God's desire is. But I have mentioned throughout this that we know that we live in a fallen world, don't you? don't we? We all know that not everything works like it should. One day it will. When Jesus returns, everything will work like it should. Even the tubes will work like they should. Everything will work. There'll be no more crying, no more dying, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more divorce, no more brokenness. All things will be good. We know. And what God is doing is in his church and by his gospel and his word and his spirit, he wants to bring as much healing, wholeness, strength, victory as possible into this world now. And that's why we preach the gospel, not just to get people saved for heaven, but so that we can have change in the blessing of the kingdom of God in people's lives on earth. That's what we need more than anything else is kingdom of God in spirit-filled lives to change the world. So we know that this is a broken world and we all have our share of brokenness in our lives. And uh, some of you may have been brought up in a wonderfully loving family with father and mother and everything. Some of you may have been brought up in a terrible broken scenario. Uh, we all taste the brokenness of this world in different ways. Uh, sometimes it's sickness. Sometimes it's poverty. Sometimes, it, it, well, it, in different ways. But I want to say that having spoken about God's best for family, that God also has an extremely strong heart for broken families broken people, situations where things have gone wrong, even broken marriages. It's amazing that at the end of the Old Testament, at least in, in our version of the Bible, Malachi, the, the last book in uh, uh, the Hebrew version, Chronicles, they have the same books as we, but we have Malachi. And it says this, Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord returns. And then you think, okay, well, what's going to happen just before the Lord returns? What's really on God's heart? And an amazing next verse. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. What an incredible statement to make. It's like, here comes Elijah. Here comes Jesus. Here comes the end time. And just before the end time, guess what's going to happen? A mighty healing, a mighty revival. Well, those things may happen, but... There's going to be family reconciliation. There's going to be healing at the core of the family. And the fathers and the sons, and that includes everybody, is a statement. 
there's going to be a wholeness and a healing. So we can expect in these end times for God to release the power of healing and wholeness into our families. We need strong Christian families to be able to hold together the great revival that God wants to do. Because your, your nation is only as strong as your families. And your families are only strong as their marriages. That, that's what society is built in. God built society on strong marriages and strong families. And we as a church as well need to bring a healing and wholeness into marriages that are broken, into people that are divorced, into families that have broken up, children that don't have fathers or, or, or mothers, whether it be because they died or because uh, may, maybe they were single parents. God wants to bring healing and wholeness into this situation. And he's got a great heart for those that have experienced brokenness in their families. Psalm 68, verse 5, there's so many scriptures, but Psalm 68, verse 5, he's a father of the fatherless and a defender of widows. A father of the fatherless. That means that if you never had a father for whatever reason, or if you had a father who wasn't a father to you, God will be your father. I mean, you know, if, 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 if my father, if I didn't have a father, I'd be like, oh, that, I'm going to miss out. But if someone said, you know what, you might not have a father, but you have a special place in the father heart of God. God is the father of all believers, but do you know he's especially, in a special way, the father of the fatherless and the defender of the widows. Now, when you read that phrase, widows, don't take it too narrowly. It does mean widows. And in those days, in the New Testament, uh, widows were often in, in destitute, destitution because they had no husband to look after them. But, but widows and orphans, it means widows and orphans, but whenever you hear widows, it's shorthand for broken families. Okay? You could put widows, orphans, divorcees, single families, broken... Anything where there's been a brokenness in a family, whether it's people's fault or, or not their fault at all, they just find themselves in that situation. Widows and orphans, broken families. Now, James chapter 1, verse 27, very powerful. I've just written about this in my new book on James that hopefully will come out next year if I can find enough time in my spare time to finish it. So do, if you, if you remember, ever remember me prayer, can you pray that I'll get this book out? Uh, ready by November, middle of November. It's a personal request. And he says that pure and undefiled religion, I mean, there's a whole context to this, but, you know, if, if you were to say, what is pure religion? If you were to say, what is the faith all about? What would you say? Oh, evangelism, or holiness, or prayer, or worship, or church planting, all those things are important, but James, James, he said this, he said in verse chapter 1, verse 27, in James, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one unstained from the world. In fact, if you actually read that in the Greek, it says, it says to visit orphans in their, in their afflictions in order to keep oneself unstained from the world. What does that mean? It means that looking after the needy and the poor will sanctify you. 
You know, when we get our eyes off ourselves and, and onto the people that have real need, firstly in the house of faith and then outside it, I don't know about you, but this pers- the persecuted church and the persecutions that are taking place is a very sobering thing. I hope that your knowledge of the persecuted church has changed your life or is changing your life. If not, why not? You know, you see all those people on YouTube, don't you? I'm at YouTube and, and Facebook doing that bucket challenge. And, it, and it's quite funny because if it's done properly, they get all that ice in that water and it's freezing and there's loads of it. And there they are standing here, yeah, and give to this charity and I'm going to do the bucket. And they're happy and they go lucky. And then someone picks up that thing and dumps it on them. And they're like, oh. And some of them are like, oh, running away. Oh. And what is, and I think that, you know, God's trying to pour his ice bucket of cold water over the church with what's going on in, pers- in the persecuted. I think God has taken his big bucket of ice and he's trying to pour it over the Western church that is so self-obsessed with petty little minor matters of, of, of no need who, who are like, you know, who are like, you know, uh, it's not wrong to do this, but, but praying for a car park place in Tesco's and believing that's the great, I do that by the way, and often it happens, but the be all that, oh, I didn't get my car park place near the, near the entrance in Tesco's. God, you don't love me anymore, you know, that type of thing. And, and this sort of like, wake up, this sort of like, wake up to what's going on, the needy and the poor. And, and that will have a tremendous effect on our spirituality. And it's there, it's the broken families. He just, if I was to like, you know, translate it into a broader way, I'd say, religion that is pure and defiled before God the Father is this. To minister to broken families. Broken and needy families. I believe that that's a fair way of, 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 of reading that. And um, we've got a lot more to do in that, but I'm just raising the issues here. He, he looks after family. That's what God's caring for. That's high on God's agenda. So that means that although we preach God's truth, and, and you know, it, we don't want broken families, do we? We want whole families. So, you know, we don't want to go around fixing things all the time. What we want to do is, is for people to rise up and become good husbands and good wives and good fathers and good, good, good mothers. And, and we don't want divorce. I'm going to mention this. We don't want divorce. We want, we want lifelong relationships and marriages, the best stable environment for children. That's what we want, don't we? The more, the better. And those of you that are from broken families, you'll probably say amen more than anybody else. You'll say, do you know, I don't want people to go through what I went through. And, and, when I, and I, I, I don't want to repeat what I went through. I, I want to give something better to my, my children. I, I, you know, if I get married and have a family, if that's God's way of leading me, then I want it to be good and strong. And, and so we preach that, but we don't then forget about those that are still needing heal, healing and, and wholeness, we minister to them. We come together as a community and we bring healing and we bring wholeness. Now, I said that first because I just want to touch on the issue of divorce today. Not in a deep, deep theological way. There are many different theological views and nuances to this. But I just want to raise this issue. And the reason I spoke about broken families first is because when often you read books or you study on people's opinions on can you be divorced, number one, as a Christian? And then if you have been divorced, can you remarry? And these questions, I've noticed that sometimes it gets very, very theological and it loses any sensitivity 
to the people that might be in that situation. It's a bit, it reminds me a bit like, you know when uh, uh, the man born blind in John's Gospel, and uh, there he is, he's been blind all his life, what a horrible situation, to have never seen anything in your life. You know, it's bad enough to go blind later in life, isn't it? But at least you can remember what you saw. Somebody could be blind later on in life. You could say, oh, it's such a beautiful tree. And they could say, describe it to me because I've seen trees. This man had never seen anything. Didn't even know what colors were. Couldn't imagine what anything was to see. And there he is in need. And the disciples go, Jesus, this man, who sinned, him or his parents, that he might be. So they didn't give a stuff about the fact that he was begging or his broken family and situation. It was a theological question. And so when we come to the situation in divorce, very often you get people with very hard views as well. It's funny how when you talk about divorce, how the hard nuts come out. The hard nuts come out and they're like banging the pulpit, talking about stuff as if it was all so obvious in Scripture. It's not. It's not. And I think that when we look about divorce and marriage in the New Testament, it's not crystal clear. And I believe that's God's will for it not to be crystal clear, so that there's room for mercy and understanding. There are guidelines there, but it's not crystal clear. And so when we come to this issue, we come thinking about broken families, about where people are when we find them in these situations. Now, let, let's go to, a, uh, there's not that many scriptures about it, actually, in the New Testament. There's, there's, there's the Gospels and there's Paul. So let's quickly just look at this, just an overview. Um, if we can go to Matthew chapter 19, where this question is specific, Matthew chapter 19, where this question is specifically given to Jesus. Matthew 19, 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. You see, right there is just what I've been saying. They were, they're not interested in broken families. They're not interested in divorcees. They're not interested in the pain and anguish that comes through a broken marriage. They don't, they don't give a stuff about it. They, did, they didn't come here to have compassionate guidance by Jesus how to deal with this social issue. It says, they came up and tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, he said? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Then they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of, of divorce and to send her away? He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. So I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, huh? if, this is such, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's been given. And so here is the scenario. They're out to test Jesus. And they want to know, because there was two positions at this time on divorce. Two schools of thought, two rabbinic schools of thought, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. 
very famous schools. And um, they wanted to know which side he was, he was on. And the school of Hillel, which the Pharisees that were coming were, 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 were probably from, most of them that are here, and, and even his disciples were following, the school of Hillel believed in no-fault divorce or, or, or divorce for any, any cause. In other words, and it was, always for, it was always the man who could do it in those days, so it, but it was like, well, you know, for any cause. Can a man divorce his wife because he's fed up with her? Yeah. Can a, a man divorce his wife for any reason then? Yes. And they had taken what was in Moses and abused it. And the law of Moses was able to be abused in this area. And so what was going on was that men had absolute power to divorce their wives at any time that they wanted for any reason. It was all in the power of the man. And, and it wasn't, and they hadn't sinned. They hadn't done anything wrong in their mindset. It was just their power. And it was going on all the time. You sort of think today, don't you? Oh, the divorce rate is terrible in Europe. Uh, it mustn't have been like that in the Bible days. Don't you believe it? Uh, men were divorcing their wives for all the wrong reasons. That was the Hillel. But then there was the school of Shammai. And Jesus was close to the school of Shammai on this respect. And they believed that the only reason that a a divorce could take place was if adultery had taken place. If sexual immorality had taken place, then the school of Shammai, that's that school of belief, believed that you could then divorce. And so Jesus was closer to Shammai, but he was stronger uh, than, than them even. Uh, because when he spoke to, spoke to them, he said, not only did he say, if whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, he mentioned the fact that to marry another would be to commit adultery. Now, we're going to come back to this, but let me just go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. We'll be back there. 5, verse 31. In the Sermon on the Mount... The greatest spirit-filled sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, is how to live the spirit-filled life apart from the law. So Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, if you look back now in Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, you can see that the disciples, not just the Pharisees, that the disciples are absolutely amazed and horrified by what Jesus said. They were like, what? Are you joking? Well, if this is the case of a man, then it's better not to marry. And so you can see the sort of low-level view of marriage that was going on at that time. For when Jesus takes a stand... And he's basically saying there should be no divorce. The disciples are like, are you crazy? Well, then it's better not to get married if we can't get divorced easily and do what we want. Which shows they had no idea about the sanctity and of marriage. And that's why Jesus referred back to Genesis in verse 5 saying a man shall leave his father and mother. And we spent a whole session together speaking on marriage from Genesis. And so Jesus was going back to the model of Genesis, 
they were going back to Moses, and they were saying, well, wait a second, Moses, Moses gave us loads of loopholes so that we could, we could get rid of our wives and divorce whenever we want. And, uh, and Jesus said, yeah, because, yeah, you abuse it, and it was given to you because of your hardness of heart. In other words, Jesus understood that it's true. The law of God did allow for divorce. They were taking it for granted, but divorce was allowed under certain circumstances in the law. And God allowed that, but it wasn't his plan and his intention. Do you hear what I'm saying? Often in the Old Testament, God will allow things without, um, in a sense, he will permit things without saying, this is my ideal. So the patriarchs, they married a number of wives, didn't they? God allowed it, but we know that that was not God's ideal. In the New Testament, it says, well, you can't be a minister if you've got more than one wife, because the ideal, this, this is Genesis is the ideal. This, this was because of the hardness of their hearts, the immaturity of their society. And God allowed it for a while until maturity came. And the law, remember, the law was given for an immature society. The law came because the people of Israel refused to walk by faith. And so the law came until they came of age. Galatians speaks about the fact that when Jesus came, it was time for everybody to grow up. That's why the law in Galatians is a tutor or a guardian or a nanny. And it says that the children of Israel were like, like little children. And the law was protecting them, guiding them, uh, disciplining them, because they were too young to think for themselves. But then... It was only a temporary measure. And then when Jesus came, they were no longer to be like children under a nanny, but they were now to act as responsible uh, adults. And so when Jesus came, it all changed. And it was like, stop acting like a child anymore. It's time to mature. And this is why many of the things in the law, Jesus had a righteousness that was higher for the law. You have heard, don't commit murder. I'm telling you, grow up, don't commit anger. You have heard, don't commit adultery. But you're doing it in your heart, and I'm telling you to stop. You know what I'm saying? So Jesus was, was saying, grow up, and let, let's take God's perfect plan here. It's only for your hardness of heart, because you were so backslidden, such a backslidden lot such a self-centered lot, such an immature lot, hardness of heart, that Moses was allowed. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce wise. But it was not so from the beginning. So although divorce had been allowed by God, it was not his best. And when we read these scriptures, we see that Jesus is very clear, divorce should never happen. It should never happen. Divorce should never happen. When Jesus is talking about it, it's not like, well, it does happen. Well, we'll come to that in a minute. But it should never happen. It should never happen. And this is why they were so, like, shocked that Jesus would take such a strong stand for marriage and for life. That marriage is for life. They were shocked. He didn't, they were waiting for him to give them the loopholes. Come on, Jesus, you know, show us the way out. Show us. And he didn't give them any loopholes. The only thing he said was, um, it could only take place if for sexual immorality. And even then, that wasn't a command. And this is where some Christians get, they think, well, what if the husband or wife commits sexual immorality? Well, you must divorce them. No, no, it's permissible to divorce them. 
But you look at God's example with the prophet Hosea. You know that? The prophet Hosea is all about marriage under attack. And God says, Hosea, I want you to live a life that is like my life with my people of Israel. I want you to go and I want you to marry a woman, Gomar, and she's going to be unfaithful to you, just like Israel is unfaithful to me. But you're not permitted to divorce her. You have to go through the pain of brokenness and rejection, and you even have to buy her back like a prostitute to demonstrate my undying love for unfaithful Israel. And he did it, didn't he? Incredible story. So right there, you, you can see God's heart. And so Jesus was not expecting all of a sudden a new law. Go out, right, and if, if, your, part, if your husband or wife wrongs you, you, should, you have to divorce them. You're permitted to. But hopefully there can be restoration and forgiveness. And, uh, and we've seen that. We've seen that. I've seen that in the pastoral ministry where things like that have happened and there hasn't been divorce. Oh, it's been awful, it's been painful because sin costs, doesn't it? I mean, the wages of sin are death and well, that means that, you know, sin affects. I mean, it's a broken promise, a broken covenant, but even then, there's a chance for healing, forgiveness. We've seen some beautiful restorations over time of marriages that, has, that have suffered things. And so the thing we see from Jesus is that he is, he is magnifying marriage in a culture that was no-fault divorce. Well, in other words, whenever the husband want, wanted to do it. And we see it's a bit like that today. No-fault divorce. In other words, and we spoke about this, you don't love me, I don't love you, or I found someone else I like, so let's divorce. And we spent time looking at the nature of marriage and saying that marriage is not just about two people that are attracted to one another. Marriage is ultimately the foundation for children. When the two become one, what does that mean? When the two become one, when they're united sexually, what is the natural outcome of that? Now, the word, today people would say, pleasure. Well, maybe so. But the natural outcome is children. Isn't it? The two become one. In fact, you're not married unless it's consummated and, and the sexual union takes place. But the natural, uh, uh, the natural conclusion of a sexual union is a child. Okay? And, and again, in days of family planning, I'm not against family planning, but these days, you know, oh, we'll have kids in about 20 years. Okay, well, that's culture. It depends what culture you're from, isn't it? And I'm not, I'm not saying one culture's wrong, one culture's right. But in a Western culture where people come together and say, we're not going to have children for years and years and years. Why? Because uh, we want to go hiking in the Himalayas. Uh, we want to go, nothing wrong with that. We want to go to do this. We want to go do that. We've got, we want, got some us time. And I'm not saying that you should rush in to have children, but don't forget that a marriage is not just two people come together. That sooner or later, the expectation is, unless there's, there's a problem or something like that, that you will have children. And so when people come and say divorce, and I mentioned that there are a, 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 a couple who were Christians who I knew that were recently divorced, and there was no reason for them to be divorced, except they fell out with one another and wouldn't work on their marriage. One blamed the other, the other, bl the other blamed the you know, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't work on it, and they decided they couldn't get along. Well, they, they had children. I tell you what, did the children want them to get divorced? You can bet they didn't. 
The children would want them to work it out. And in the old days, in the old days, people would just work it out for the sake of the children. Although that's not, <laughs> I hope it gets a bit better than that. It's a start, isn't it? Hey, look, we got children. We have to work this out. So, but you don't have to work it out anymore, do you? Well, it seems like you don't have to. And Christians fall out of love and don't get on. It's like, well, it doesn't work. It's not working for me anymore. Well, that's a bit like what it was, it was back then. And, uh, but when Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So some people say that if divorce takes place except for one of the partners committing adultery, then they can never get remarried again. That if they're divorced, they're not really divorced. Uh, they might be divorced in law, but it's not recognized by God. And that if you divorce for any other reason than sexual immorality, they, uh, they say you can never get married again in your life. Too bad, it's over. Well, I want to speak into that because this is where we get this narrow-minded sort of take one scripture, forget everything else, and just bang it against things. Because Jesus, um, that would mean that if anybody who are a Christian, or we could say that this is general for even non-Christians, anybody who was a Christian, that if they, for whatever reason, divorced, except for immorality, let's put that aside, but there was a fact, there was a breakdown, there was a divorce, for whatever reason, then that would mean that if those two that divorced ever got, ever got remarried again, according to this view, every time they went to bed together, they would be committing adultery for the rest of their lives. That's what it would mean, because this view says that if you're divorced for any other reason, then uh, you, you cannot get remarried. Well, I want to say that that's not the case. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Now, Jesus was strong on it. I'm not weakening what... Je Jesus was stronger than anybody around him. Marriage is for life. Mar mar divorce should never, never take place. It, it should be an absolute... What? can't believe I know somebody who got divorced. I can't believe it. Because divorce, according to Jesus, is an absolute... No, no, no. It, it, it's one of the worst things that could possibly happen. And yet we know the reality, don't we? Uh, many of us have, have witnessed such situations. Well, John chapter 4, verse 16. There's Jesus with the Samaritan woman. And she comes to him and Jesus says to her, Go call your husband. John chapter 4. Verse um, 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and bring him here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, I perceive you're a prophet. Uh, a prophet. Well, isn't that an insight? Jesus had a word of knowledge. He didn't say, go call your husband. And then she says, well, I have no husband. And he said, yep, you've had four sexual partners. And the first husband, which is your only husband, you're not with him. 
he recognized the absolute tragedy of that woman's life. I mean, the big concern, a big concern in society is that, you know, uh, divorce can often be repetitive. If you divorce, you're a lot more likely to divorce again. And he said to her, look, you've had four husbands. Five husbands, sorry, five husbands. I don't know what, what that meant. I don't know if she was divorced five times. I don't, I, don't know how, I don't know how it worked. It probably was that she was divorced five times because woman doesn't go around divorcing husbands, but she, you know, she'd gone from, I mean, it must have been awful if she had, mustn't it? You know, I've had enough of you, divorced. Find somebody else. I've had enough of you, divorced. Find someone else. I've had enough of you, divorced. Find somebody else. I've had enough of you, divorced. Find somebody else. Well, I think I'll just live with him this time. So it's terrible, but I just want to say, Jesus recognized not that she'd have five partners, but she'd had five husbands. It was a horrendous situation. Remember, this is the Jesus that said, divorce should not take place. And only for adultery if you have to. It's permissible. It's not, it's not a commandment, but if it's permissible. That's the, that's the only reason. He had high standards. But here he comes to minister to such a woman. The disciples were amazed when they saw him with her. They couldn't believe it was with a woman, let alone a woman like this, who was damaged goods, you might say, in their eyes. And so he'd recognized this, that she'd entered into that covenant. Man and woman shall be one. And it was a broken covenant. And it ended. It was finished. It was divorced. And then he recognized that she entered into another covenant, a covenant that should only been entered in once. And it broke and another, and it broke, and another, and it broke. Although this is the absolute opposite to Jesus' desire, he recognized that divorce, as terrible as it is, he recognized the divorce. Do you hear what I'm saying? He recognized that she was indeed married those five times. He didn't approve of it. He recognized it, but he came to heal it. He didn't go to the elders of the village. He went to the divorcee, the five times divorced person. I mean, you know, in the church of today, somebody who was divorced five times, you know, would they, would, they, would they even be welcomed? You know what I'm saying? Jesus found the most broken woman he could, who had gone through the most broken uh, relationships that she, he could. He didn't judge her, although he put his finger on the problem, and he ministered to her, and she became his representative to the rest of the village. And then the village believed, met Jesus, and they didn't like him. They said, well, now we believe because we've met him, so off you go. They didn't like the fact that a divorcee brought the gospel to their village. This says a lot about Jesus' uh, attitudes and actions. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, which is often the other major uh, place that... that that we go. You know, some people often use and quote in quite a strong way. Well, well we're going to 1 Corinthians um, 7. One Corinthians 7. Uh, well, 10, but we'll go from 10. But just just to go, I don't want to go to it, I haven't got time. But Malachi 2:16, God hates divorce. And some, I, I have 
And, and I believe he, he does hate divorce because of what it does to people. But can I say this? If God hates divorce, he doesn't hate divorcees. As we've just seen in, um, in, in, in John. Now, in Malachi, I better go to it. You don't need to go to it, but I will, just because I just want to make this point. Because so many times over the years, we've been dealing with broken marriages and things like that. You get some person who stands up and starts judging the situation. Don't know what's going on, but judge the situation. And they quote Malachi 2.16, saying God hates, div- the, hates divorce. And do you know what? It doesn't even say that. Malachi 2.16 says, uh, oops, Malachi, sorry. I think I've got the wrong. Oh yeah, Malachi 2.16, for God hates divorce. But actually, what it reads is this. It says, in the Hebrew, for the man who hates and divorces his wife. That's what it says. The actual hate is not God, but the man hating and divorcing his wife. Uh, They've they've mistranslated it. And so people, I I just use that because people quote that all the time to sort of like, and what they mean, it's just, it's like God hates divorce. and And what they're doing is they're attacking somebody. But it's not even God hating divorce. It's the man who hates his wife and therefore divorces her. That's just a little thing. It may mean nothing to you, but you may have heard someone use that. Uh, God may hate divorce, but he loves divorcees. And uh, back to 1 Corinthians 7, very, very quickly. This is just an overview, an introduction. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the believing wife is made holy because of the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. Now, what Paul is saying here is he's writing scripture is he, he is saying this, basically, in this passage. He's talking about unbelievers, and he's saying, no, if you're a Christian and your husband or wife is an unbeliever, you don't divorce them. You don't say, and I, I've heard people say this. I've had to correct them over the years. They've said, well, I'm saved now, and my wife, she's not saved, and my husband's not saved, and I don't feel that God wants me to be with that because she's demon-possessed or he's demon-possessed. And I don't think, because I'm holy and everything like that, and, I don't, and they're not Christian, and he doesn't believe like I believe, and this, that, and the other. And, and, and it's like, well, well, why? Is he asking you for a divorce? No, 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 he's not. But I want to get out. I want to get in. And, and the problem with the Corinthians was this. You had, had people that were having sex all the time with whoever they wanted, on the one hand, and then you had married couples that weren't even having sex with one another because they thought it was unholy. So you had a bunch of people that thought, how can I, a holy Christian, be married to an unholy non-Christian? This, this, I'm not going to even, I'm not even going to, I don't even want to be with them, let alone, uh, you know, have marital relationships with an unbeliever. I might get demonized. It's like those people that go around and say, oh, I'm worried, Pastor, why? Someone put their hand and pray, prayed for me, and I think they're a witch. Oh, what? And you think that they imparted their witchcraft into your life? Yeah. It's like, 
greater is he that's in you than in the world. Grow up. And so this was this type of background that was going on. And he was saying, hey, if they want to stay with you, you stay with them. But if they leave you, he says, you're not bound to them. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. But if the, um, if the um, 1 Corinthians 7, 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, not bound. If you go to 1 Corinthians 7, 39, the same basic word is used there. And it says, but where, um, 1 Corinthians 7, 39... A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. It's the same root word. And so here, what that's saying is this, is that we know that if you are a widow or a widower, you may or may not marry again, but you're free to marry again. And what Paul is saying is, is if this person divorces you, this unbeliever, then you are free to marry again just as if your wife or your husband died. But you aren't the one that institutes the divorce. And so when we look at that, and that's about all we have in the New Testament to be really, that there's not, I mean, there's Mark and Luke, uh, they, they refer also to what we've read in Matthew, but that's about all that we have. And we see Paul applying Jesus' principles to a situation that he was facing. And so, what do we talk about other reasons for divorce? Some people say, well, you know, if you're in a, an abusive marriage, or your husband, says is an alcoholic, we've had situations like that, and refuses to come to terms with that, or is beating you up, and we've had situations in the past where a wife has had an abusive husband, and has been beaten up, and then the husband says, sorry, and then she goes back to him because of the word of God and gets beaten up again. And then the husband says, sorry. And we, start, and we say, wait a second, this is abuse. This is abuse. I remember being in a situation. I said, I want to, I want to meet your husband. Oh, he said, sorry again. I want to meet with him. And so met with him. And I said, this can't go on. I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, you've been sorry before. And before and before. This is a cycle. What are you going to do to address this problem? Because Ephesians says that a man should love his wife as his own body, and you are abusing her. What are you going to do? And we, gave, we said, these are the things. These are, she's, she's not going to move back with you until you've done this, that, and the other, and the other, and, and you're going to prove that you've changed. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He didn't want to do it. He wouldn't. He refused. He didn't care for her enough to go for the help that she wanted. And she would say, well, if, there was a, if she was away from him long term and there's no change, what about then? Well, I would be open. You see, I can't give a blank statement. Do you understand? Because you've got to know the situation that you're in. You've got to see what's happening. You have to apply the principles of abusive situations and things like that. Sometimes I've seen scenarios where somebody is divorced, and you know what? I say to them, I don't think there was much that you could do in that situation. You tried your best. And this is the thing, to try your best. And I've seen scenarios where the husband or the wife 
has tried their best. They've said, whatever I need to do, just help me. Help us, help us. I'll, I'll change. I'll, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever's needed. I'll play my part. And the other person has absolutely refused to do it. Refused to do it. I've seen it. The person had no, the, the woman or the man had no interest in saving the marriage. They didn't want to save it. The other did. They were being unreasonable. They weren't doing their share. And then when the divorce takes place, what do you say about the person that did their best? That they can never marry again? Well, you have to look at the situation. And as time goes by and they find the right person and they've been healed and, and everything like that and it's all being brought, who's to say? Remember, Divorce, God does not want, but he does recognize divorce. He does recognize divorce. I've had Christians go to somebody who was divorced and remarried and say, you need to divorce your present husband and go back to your first husband because you're committing adultery. And so their view was that you can never be divorced. Or if you're divorced, you can never remarry. Bringing their legalism into situations, not saying what's happened here. There's been a broken situation here. Man down, woman down, broken scenarios. Maybe the person, it was their fault in the past. Maybe they were the ones that committed adultery. Maybe they say, I threw my marriage away. Well, what do you do after a year, two years, three years? Can that person change? Is it an unforgivable sin? Can that person become a different person? Well, if they remain the same, then it would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? But can people change? Can people be restored? Can we in the body of Christ discern situations, apply the truths of Scripture? Know that Jesus, I mean, he didn't, he, he, they couldn't believe how strong Jesus was for marriage. And yet ministered to a woman, divorced five times. I think we need this sort of healthy view. We, otherwise, we'd be careful, you go to one side or the other. You go to one side where, you, where you, you become a forbidding Pharisee. That's not the some forbidding legals, laws, commandments. You don't look at where people are or where they've come or the journey they're on or how they can be healed. Laws, legal, you don't care about them and you're on the one side. Or you go to the other side where it doesn't really matter. I've seen in some Christians' di divorces, terrible. Terrible. And, and, you know, they'll just find any excuse. Oh, he's abusing me. No, he's not. You know, he shouted at me, it's abuse, it's abuse, it's abuse. I'm... And I've known a number of situations where the wife has divorced the husband falsely saying that he abused her. Falsely. And, it was, and she was a Christian. It was, she needed an out clause. She needed an out clause so that she could walk away with her so-called integrity. Excuse me, Phariseeism. So she concocted this thing, she made up this thing that was not true, lied about it, began to even make, perhaps believe it herself, and then goes away and goes around telling anywhere or whatever church she's gone to, oh yes, I was divorced, I, I was wronged, I was abused, and it's nonsense. That's the other extreme, you know what I'm saying? Where people just find a loophole, just call it what you want, I'm going to make an excuse to get out of this marriage. Well, this is just an introduction. I haven't even touched on the issues, but I wanted to raise them. How can we talk about family? I want to finally say that if you've been in any form of broken relationship or any broken family, it's not the end for you. It's not the whatever situation. It's not the unforgivable sin. 
And maybe there's a great deal of healing that needs to go on in your life, and maybe you need to contact us. We have ministers available during the week. You can speak to lady ministers too, and you can email myself if you want. You can ring us. There's counselors available Monday to Friday, pastors available Monday to Friday. If you want to talk about this, if you want to take this a bit further and say, I need help, I don't know what I'm doing. So, something happened in my life, and I, and I don't know where I am. And, and, and God will bring his healing because at the front of, the, of God's queue in his clinic, right at the front are the broken the hurting, the divorced, the abused. You know, you've got booper in the kingdom of heaven. The rest of us are national health. Thank God for that. But those of you that, that are the broken, the broken from family abuse, broken marriages, whether it was your fault, not your fault, everybody's fault, you, 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 you are number one on God's program to being healing and holy. You're not the one the being pushed away from God. It's not the unforgivable sin. No, you are a candidate for a work of God. If you are humble and ready and acknowledge your need of God and change, God will bring healing for you. Well, I hope those of you that have been in this series have enjoyed it. I know we've just touched some of the issues, but at least it's been an introduction for you to think about and, and move forward in. And as I said, next week, we're going back to why we can trust this book and everything that's in it. Thank you.